So we've, um, we've been in a, an Advent series and it's called Elevating Hospitality. And we're in our last week of that series this Sunday and then next Saturday we celebrate Christmas with Christmas Eve. And in, in the first sermon, I titled it Elevating Hospitality and we just talked about just this kind of bigger idea of what it means to invite God in. And actually that a lot of times that God shows up, whether we're asking or expecting it or not. And we even did this prayerful meditative exercise together from the scripture in Isaiah that we were studying where, um, where I led us through imagining going up to the temple of the Lord and, and what that would, would be like together. So we could fill not just our minds, our intellect, but also our hearts with our imagination of what it means to be in the presence of God and to share that presence with other people. And then the second week, we, the sermon was titled, Prepare the Way of the Lord. And that was really about repentance. And what do we do? And, and John the Baptist preaching repentance and prepare the way of the Lord. And what do we do to do that? That we've got clutter in our lives and that clutter is often built up out of things that we thought we needed and maybe we did need for a while. But those things are hindrances or they've become hindrances. And some of those might qualify as sin. Some of it just might be uh, shame that we're holding on to and, and don't know what to do with. But as we prepare the way of the Lord and we ask God to help remove that clutter and we take initiative to remove that clutter in our life that we make space for the presence of God and space for one another. And last week, we talked about a joy that makes room for sadness. And as we talked about that, we were talking about the contradiction or even the paradox of Jesus's ministry moving forward while John the Baptist sat in prison awaiting a death penalty and how that uh, in our lives and even in the ministry of Jesus, while Jesus was healing and, and lifting up those in front of them, that there was still sadness and pain all around him. And that the same thing is true in our lives, that one of the greatest gifts of seeing the incarnation and knowing and reflecting on the incarnation of God into Jesus, into a human being, is that we can be assured it's okay to be in one place at one time and to experience what's happening in front of us and to be with the people that we can be with and to be in the feelings that we have and knowing that we can't solve or make sense of everything else in the world, but we can be where we are and minister to the people in front of us just like Jesus did. And in this sermon this morning, it's called uh, Expecting Company. And what I want us to do is be able to look at two important things as we look at this birth narrative of Jesus. Is the very near idea right now at Advent that God came near to us through the person of Jesus and celebrating that and looking at that in this scripture, but also to recognize and pay attention to the fact that the nearness of Jesus, that Jesus 
in his form on earth also, also drew attention to this incredibly important idea that is fresh and new every day, and that's that Jesus showed us that God was already here with us. That God was already here with us. Those are the two subjects for the sermon this morning, expecting company. So I want to ask you a really personal question right now. Have you ever been in love with somebody, but they didn't know it? I'd say most people would say yes. Could you nod ahead or give some indication? You ever, you ever been in that situation? Or you weren't sure if they knew it, you hoped that they knew it, you hoped that maybe that they loved you back and you wouldn't have to say it first? Or you wrote about it in your journal? about so-and-so, I love them so much, but I'm afraid to say something to them. And, and you tried to make it obvious with certain gestures, like maybe you handed them something and you touched their finger for a little while before you let go of it. Or you just, when, you, when they were talking to you, you just made a lot of eye contact, you know, and you kind of blinked a little bit too much, right? You did nice things for them that you'd never done for anybody else and maybe your mom complained about you not doing all the time. You left all these little indicators that you loved that person, but maybe you just didn't know if they knew. And as I was thinking about these scriptures and this time anticipating Jesus' birth and Advent, I think God's kind of in that position with us sometimes where God is, has left all these beautiful little notes and indicators all over that God is completely in love with us, that we are the beloved of God. And we are so preoccupied with other things, with other concerns, with other busyness, or maybe even boredom, or whatever it might be, and we miss it. We miss those things. So much so that God said, okay, I'm going to show up in a very obvious way. I'm going to show up in a human being. And I'm going to show you exactly what it sounds like and what it looks like. So if you've, if you've been attending the Advent services, you've noticed that there's a theme every week. And this week, the theme is, in fact, love. And so as we explore this passage here and we think about the presence of God, that God shows up in Jesus and that then Jesus being God present with human beings, we weren't there, so we didn't get that experience, but that God, and God being present with human beings in Jesus also shows us and points to all those little love letters that God has left for us to pick up and discover. And how does that play into our understanding of hospitality and elevating it? And what I love about this passage, what I personally really appreciate about this passage and, and other, other passages uh, like it in the other gospels and a couple of the other ones, um, is we get to see the impact on a real personal level. So, so in the book of John, the book of John starts out and it says, the word made flesh and dwelt among us. And it was all these big grandiose things about Jesus 
being the incarnate word, being if you took everything that God said and did and you wrapped it and clothed it in flesh, there was Jesus. But then in the other gospels here, and in this passage we're gonna look at right here, we get to see, we get to see what kind of impact this situation actually had on the real people whose lives it completely disrupted, on Mary and Joseph's lives in particular. And I think that this provides us so much insight into these ideas here of the presence of God through Jesus and how Jesus pointed to the already and everywhere presence of God with us. So let's take a look here at uh, this first, these first couple of verses. So I'm looking back at verses 18 and uh, 19. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because of Joseph, her husband was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. The beginning of the next couple of verses, it starts just with just, but after he considered this, but after he considered this. So in, in this passage, it kind of starts us off all, already. Mary has been uh, notified by the angel and they've had the back and forth. And she said, okay, this is crazy, but I'm down for it. We can do this. And we get to this spot right here where we find out Mary is engaged to Joseph, pledged to be married, and then it was found out she was pregnant. And it does say, through the Holy Spirit. But in verse 19, we see, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he invited, he had it in his mind to divorce her quietly, which means he didn't think she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And if he did, that's not what he would be thinking, that's not what he would be doing. But there's a, there's a really fascinating thing going on here, and it's a theme throughout this whole passage of Scripture. And I think it's a theme in how we see God's presence all throughout, if we're willing to pay attention, all throughout our lives, all throughout good and ill, all throughout shameful situations and beautiful situations. And it's, it's this consideration that Joseph had here. Last, last year in the lectionary passages during this time, we were talking about a conversation between Mary and Elizabeth. And so this year we're seeing this other side of things. What was Joseph doing? What was he thinking about? What was going on uh, with him? And it says that when he found out that Joseph was, or Mary was pregnant, it said he was faithful to the law but he also didn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace. So he, he was thinking, okay, this is not a good situation. And in fact, the Hebrew law and the interpretations that he would have been aware of at the time would have said, hey, that means that she was unfaithful. And in some Jewish law, it says it's worse if if there's infidelity during the engagement than during the marriage, that it's even worse and the punishment's worse. I mean, basically the punishment's some kind of death. You're like, you're gonna get stoned or whatever. And it's not, it wouldn't have just been Mary, but the other guy. So good luck finding him, right? But uh, so Joseph is thinking about that law, but he's pondering it. 
and he's wondering about it. And he's thinking, what I don't want to do, I don't want harm to come to Mary. Which means that within Joseph, because it says he was a righteous man, that there was this mixture happening inside of him of, of what he believed was right, how he was going to follow the law, but this deep sense of grace and mercy and willingness to take a moment to see what really should I do? He didn't snap judgment, decide, here's what I want to do. I'm going to put Mary on blast and I'm so angry and I'm going to make sure that she gets the worst punishment possible and all of these types of things. So he slowed down his thinking and his decision-making and thought about what is the most sort of gracious thing that could happen here. Is this not the way that all of us would hope to be treated if we were found in a situation that looked less than honorable, less than good, that we would be given this benefit of the doubt. What would, what would have happened if Joseph didn't do that? What, what would have happened if, if, he would have, if he would have just gone for whatever the most strict punishment of the day was? What would have happened to Mary and Jesus within her stomach growing? In the previous verses of this chapter, Matthew chapter one, there's a genealogy for Jesus. And the writer, Matthew, he wrote this for a lot of different purposes. But one of the purposes was to show that Jesus was from the bloodline of royalty and the patriarchs. And so that he had a legitimate and prophetic right to be a Messiah for the Jewish people. But if that was Matthew's only goal, this genealogy would have looked really different. In fact, this genealogy has some really strange things to include for somebody who you're trying to prop up as the most morally perfect, righteous human being to ever live. It, it, it wouldn't have made sense to a lot of people at that time as to why Matthew wrote it like he did. So I'm gonna to read to you a couple of verses here and we'll see the connection between the circumstances of, of Mary's pregnancy and with this genealogy and what it is that God might be trying to show us and even show us right now about his presence. So verse one in Matthew chapter one, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Now, I don't know how many of you went to Sunday school and you learned all these Old Testament stories 
but there's a couple of names that kind of go off in your head if you have. Some stories that pop up that are, eh, they're a little iffy. They're, they're a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I would include that in a Messiah's genealogy. It's a little bit hairy. It's a, it's a little bit disturbing to hear that. First of all, at the time, it would have been strange to even include the women in the genealogy. But Matthew goes out of his way to include so many of the women. And then on top of it, he even like tells you at the end there, he's like, by the way, the, the mother of Solomon was another man's wife that David unlawfully took. And by the way, killed him too. If you, know, you remember or are aware of that one. So right away, when you hear this story of the birth of Jesus, it's amazingly shameful and scandalous and messy. I just want, I just want, I want you to get a, a, a little bit of an idea about this, some of, the, some of the women and what happened to them. Not only were a lot of them not Jewish people, so they weren't, they weren't in the fold of, of the Jewish bloodline at all, but their lives were in some way touched by sexual scandal. So Tamar, Tamar had two husbands, one, her first husband, such a bad guy, says God put him to death. Second guy, same thing. So then Tamar actually tricks her father-in-law and her father-in-law is such a bad guy that this works, tricks him, dresses up like a prostitute, gets him to have sex with her so she can have a baby. And that child is in Jesus's genealogy as part of the line of Jesus, of this desperate woman surrounded by evil men trying to make a way for herself filled with all kinds of, of, of sexual issues here. So she gave birth to twins, and one of the twins was Perez, who we see in verse three, part of Jesus's family tree. And then we have Rahab shows up here, and Rahab ran a brothel in Jericho. So she was, she was uh, yeah, she ran a brothel, and she was also not an Israelite, and she married into the family, of the Jewish people, and, uh, and she became a mother and a grandmother. So, wow, geez, that's a lot right there. And then Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite. You know where those Moabites came from? Way back in the day, Abraham, you know, God's chosen. There was also his cousin Lot. Do you know what happened for Lot's two daughters to have children? It was incest. Let me just say that. And so that's where Ruth came from. And Ruth is married into the Jewish uh, people after her husband dies. And she becomes the great grandmother to David, King David. And like I mentioned a moment ago, King David, he take somebody else's wife. She has no choice in the matter. He's the king of the entire nation. And the child that they have together is Solomon, like one of the greatest kings in the, in the story of Israel. Scandal after scandal that Matthew brings into the genealogy and lineage 
of Jesus. And it ends with an engaged woman who is now pregnant outside of wedlock. As I think about the activity and the presence of God, and I think about the ways that I have been shamed and I've shamed myself about where God might be willing to operate, when I read this genealogy, what I find is that the presence of God is not afraid of scandal or shame, is not afraid of whatever has been done to you or what you have done to others, that God isn't going to leave you or forsake you based on those types of things, that you don't have to get it all right or clean it all up to be able to experience and to have God's love and presence with you, that this is a scandalous God here in the midst of so much shame. So here's, here's the thing, because some of you are like, yeah, I've heard that. You know, I grew up evangelical. I know. I know that. But here's the thing. If you find yourself waiting for the right circumstances or a perfect scenario or till you get to a certain point in your life to really see God's presence or for God to show up, you might spend all your time looking for something, believing it's somewhere on the horizon once you get things right, once you get things cleaned up, and you miss the love letters that are already in your midst. You hear what I'm saying? We, we do that all the time in our relationships with one another. Why wouldn't we do it with God as well? So, so part, of, part of what I'm getting from this passage this week right now is I can find all the love, all the love that I was created to have when things are still messy, when things are still scandalous, when things are full, still full of shame, which means I want to look for it, that I want to look for it. I want to expect it. I want to knock and have the door be opened. I don't want to wait. Verse 20. But after he, Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. So Joseph is trying to figure out what he's going to do. The answer isn't apparent or easy for him to get to. But in the midst of him not thinking so black and white, not moving straight from the fear of what's happening into judgment and condemnation, he actually has enough time to consider and to fall asleep. And when he does, he gets new information. And finds out, hey, Mary, as crazy as this sounds, is actually telling the truth. And that when she has the child, you're to give him na the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Sometimes slower is faster. 
Sometimes there's areas of our life that we want to resolve, that we're so quick to try to make sense of, and maybe we're missing the activity of God because it isn't clean, because there's shame around it, because we imagine that God wouldn't operate in those type of spaces and situations. Maybe there is more grace to be had there. Maybe there is a way that things can become reconciled that we hadn't yet not considered. Uh, we've got this little, um, this little study group right now. Um, I, call it, I call it BTS. Um, and it's initials, but also a boy band that Tori likes. Um, and we've been studying this, uh, this tool called the Daily Examine. And it was created by St. Ignatius many, many centuries ago. And the idea of the daily exam is that at, the, at lunchtime or in the evening that you reflect on your day. And the first part of it, the first step, there's kind of five movements or steps in it. But in the first step, the goal is to invite God into your memories from the day. And in some of the verbiage around it, it says your day might feel like a jumble at first, like just a bunch of disconnected and disorganized events. You were quickly eating a banana and a, and, a, and a power bar before you run off to work and you've changed a diaper or your alarm didn't go off or something like that, right? You get to work and it's just all this stuff going on. It's just one thing after another. But the goal is to invite God into your memories of the day. And when I've done this, some things begin to brighten in my memory. And some things begin to become clearer to me about a moment that happened, about a, a hug from my three-year-old at 5.30 in the morning that didn't feel really awesome at that exact moment. But what happens is through the reflection, I begin to receive clarity about the ways in which God was with me and with the activities of my day. And wouldn't you know it, in, in, a, in a day after that, and a week after that, when I've practiced those things, I find that I'm able to find little notes from God in more places. I'm able to see in the midst of messiness, uh, of difficulty, of strained relationships, or not enough sleep, or um, tragedies, I'm still able to see God with me. So Joseph, he listened. Mary listened first, then Joseph listened. And it says in verse 22 that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This passage that's quoted here by Isaiah, I mean by Matthew, is from the book of Isaiah. And if you go back and you read 
that passage in Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking to a king, a Jewish king, and he might even be talking about, prophesying about his, his own son, talks about a, somebody who's going to grow up and live at that time. But as Matthew reflects on the birth and the life of Jesus, as he looks back on it, as he looks back on the circumstances of Jesus's birth and everything that happened after, this passage come to, comes to his mind. And it's infused with new meaning and new significance about what it meant for God to come and to be with us. And he said, this has to be actually about Jesus. It, it's gotta be actually about him. And this was not... This is not an abnormal thing. It's abnormal for us more in Christian thinking and Christian theology, but there's even this entire holy text in Judaism called the Mishnah. And it's, it's an additional set of laws and things like that, but there's, there's also this, um, uh, this other concept in Judaism called Midrash, and that's actually what I was thinking of, midrash. And midrash is when you allow in your imagination to fill in the in-between spaces between the texts, all the things that are left out, all the things that might have happened before or after what we actually see there. It's inviting our imagine, our interpretive imagination into the scriptures in ways that the Old Testament and New Testament writers did pretty freely and often. And so when we see that passage there from Isaiah, particularly when it says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God's, God with us, that, that Matthew reflected and he found new meaning. He found new presence of God's love in that passage. And I wanna to read to you a quote from this Jewish scholar named Lawrence Kushner. He, he wrote this book and the whole book is around, um, I think it's called, what is it called? It's called um, God, God Was Here and I Was Unaware. It's the line that Jacob says when Jacob falls asleep, sees this ladder of angels ascending and descending in and out of heaven, descending and ascending actually, no, ascending and descending in that order. And he's talking about this interpretive exercise of Midrash, and I want, I want to read what he says about this here. He says, imagine, for instance, that your life, as it superficially appears to others, is the apparent text so imagine your life is like the text of the scriptures. Beneath and within you move forces and fantasies often concealed from those watching and even from yourself that are the metrics for each outward event. So just like when somebody sees your life there's all kinds of other things going on underneath that we don't know what somebody is thinking or feeling or why they're choosing to do what they do just based on the surface. And he's saying, you can read the text like this as well. He says, in a similar way, Midrash attempts to imagine how the apparently discordant words of the text 
might be woven into a larger coherent whole. Such an approach is more than literary criticism. Only when the words of the text are holy or like a love letter are read with a diligence of attention, wondering on reverence, can midrash occur. So imagine if we looked at the scriptures that way, but also our lives that way. That the things that are happening around us are holy. That there's actually little love letters Jesus pointed to it all throughout his ministry. He he showed how the ordinary was imbued with the extraordinary. What if we lived more that way? What if we believed, yes, that God showed up in Jesus 2,000 years ago? But what if we actually also believed when Jesus said, and the kingdom of heaven is near within you and among you? What would that do to how we welcomed other people into our lives? How, could, how we welcomed imperfect experiences into our lives? How we welcomed the shame of our past and our present? A few days ago, it was, we, we had, as I'm sure many of you did, had some parties, some holiday parties, some Christmas parties, some school uh, events. Last day of school, our kids are home for two weeks now, and we're shaking in our boots, and uh, our Santa boots. And um, there was a particularly tense moment at home. And I walked into this side, our side bedroom, and I was trying to get something. And I looked outside, and it was in the evening. It was like the evening light of the sun starting to set. And there's this real ugly azalea bush right outside that window. And uh, at least it's ugly to me right now. Um, but what was happening is the, the light from the evening sun was hitting those leaves, and those leaves were glowing. They were incandescent with light. And at the same time that the leaves were glowing with light, there was also a shadow being cast on the window. And so there was this shadow moving, and then there was this beautiful incandescent light there. And when I looked at that, I said, God was here, and I was unaware. I, I, saw, I saw this love letter. And let me tell you, it was like a 10-second moment with yelling and miscommunication and all types of other things going on in my house, but I saw that. And I said, God was here, and I was unaware. When I think about this gift of Advent, what I want to, as I'm closing, what I want to remind and encourage each of us to do is to not just think about, like I said, Jesus' birth 2,000 years ago, but what Jesus pointed us to that perhaps if we look for it now, that we can find love letters of God's presence, that we can find holy moments where we can say, I gotta, I gotta like take off my shoes or I gotta do something here because I've just realized 
I'm on holy ground. That God is present and here with us in this moment, communicating love to us. I want you to hope for that this Christmas. I want you to expect it, to ask, to knock, to seek. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. I'm so glad. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the work you're doing in our world in the midst of tragedy and in the midst of things that didn't go our way. I pray that you would visit us in ways that are so apparent to us we can't deny them. And we can receive love from you. Amen.